Good morning, fellowship. Good to see you here this morning. And uh, one of the things I have learned is that when you tell a joke related to money, some people don't take it as a joke. So you ain't getting no new clothes from anybody here, brother. Just want to make it. You think, well, why was that necessary? You should look at my inbox sometimes. You'll see why it's necessary. So some people are very, you know, yeah, okay. Never <laughs> But it's so good to see all of you here this morning, and uh, uh, this is indeed a historic time in, in, in our church, in the history of our church, and what God is, God is doing in and through us. We have struggled with uh, uh, this time, this season here, as we plan for these five-week messages and this emphasis. One of, the, one of the things that's been heavy on my heart and heavy on the hearts of the elders and the leaders is that... We don't want our people feeling like we're being herded in a direction, but that rather we're responding to God's call. And that's been our desire more than anything else, that we're listening to the Lord and responding to the call of God to help us translate vision, vision to reality. And so that's why we're doing what we're doing. One other quick thing I want to uh, make you aware of is that on March the 8th, we're going to have just a time of celebration at our church and and worshiping and praising God for what uh, we believe he's going to do in and through us over these next two years. Part of that celebration, we're going to have a choir, and um, they're going to be singing on that day. Uh, I do understand that there's still some room for those of you who would like to take part in that. Thursday evening at 6.30, um, they rehearse, and so we get two more Thursday evenings, and it promises just to be a great time. So if you can sing, if you can't sing but you want to sing, you may not want to come up, okay? But if you can sing, we want you to be, want you to be a, part, a part of that. Well, let's bow our heads together for a word of prayer. Holy Father, we thank you for the grace of God. We thank you for your goodness. I thank you for... Uh, what you're doing in our hearts and lives. And thank you, Father God, for the incredible momentum uh, that you are giving to us in many ways. And Lord, thank you for bringing us here at this point. And I, I pray in the name of your Son that you will help all of us to be listeners, listening to you, listening to your word, listening to the promptings of the Spirit of God, and that we will respond to you. Father God, this is your church. This is your vision. These are your people. And so we place ourselves in your hands and we pray, Spirit of the living God, work in a great way. I pray for every person here, those who are struggling with needs in various ways, and we all have them. Spirit of the living God, will you please take your word and speak to our hearts. We love you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for what you will do. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have a Bible, I know that Nehemiah chapter 8 was read to you, but I want you to open it to chapter 6, Nehemiah Nehemiah chapter chapter 6. Let me tell you where we're going today. We're going to spend some time in chapter 6 and chapter 8 today, and at the end of our time, we're going to have a time in which we prayerfully contemplate what God wants us to do. We will collect the intention cards as part of our offering along with our offering, and that will be, that will be at, the end, at the end of the service. This is the final in the five-part series that we're doing on the book of Nehemiah. One of the reasons why I felt led to preach these five messages is, as I said last week, 
I don't know of any place in the Bible that so uh, uh, outlines in, in such an inviting way uh, the foundation biblically and theologically of what God does in human history. And it's just really so, so marvelously sequential as you read through the book of Nehemiah. We've entitled the series, What If? What If? And we know throughout history, God asked his people, what if? He brings to us what ifs. And that's the whole story of the Bible. The people of God responding to the assignments of God so that the glory of God can be demonstrated during their moment in history. And Nehemiah was a ca in captivity. There he was, minding his own business. And there was a delegation from Jerusalem. Um, his own brother was a part of the delegation. And Nehemiah asked him a question. Asked him a question that changed everything. He asked him simply, how are the folks doing there in Jerusalem? Some months and months and months and months ago, we asked Brandon and Paul the same thing. Well, you know, we keep passing these kids in hallways, and how are things going? And like Nehemiah, um, we felt very much the same way. The answer to that question drove Nehemiah to his knees. And so we've, we've outlined, really, the, the, the sequences of how this whole thing builds. Where does it begin? How has it started? In chapter 1 over to chapter 2, how has it started? Well, first of all, you listen. Secondly, you pray. And then, thirdly, you act, always in that order. You listen, you pray, and then you act. How, well, then, you know, how is it shaped? What, what does he do? Well, we find out Nehemiah going and doing his homework before he recruits anybody to do anything, before he prints any brochures or does any presentations. He, he, he just does his homework and allows God to help him put together this plan. And so he does, and then he announces it to the people. That, then then how is it shared? Nehemiah was very bright. He understood that we are fragile people, and the problem with vision is that it leaks, and that you don't do God's work in a vacuum. You don't just make up your mind you're going to do something for the glory of God and, and just think that you're going to be encouraged all the way along the line. And so he develops this a masterful next-to plan, which has to do with keeping the people encouraged as they press into the work. And, and not only that, he wanted to be efficient and effective. He, only, he knew that he just had a window and that uh, attention spans gets, gets lost. And so he put them together as families and units so that they could draft with one another. Then how is this whole thing sustained? How is it sustained? As I mentioned, we don't live in heaven and board down here. Uh, we, we do the work of God in the context of hostility, that there's a real devil, there's a real enemy. Uh, you just don't go off and do what God wants you to do unopposed. And so we looked at the, those five sources last week of opposition and how Nehemiah responded and responded in each one of them, first of all, vertically by prayer and discernment. But he also did some things about the issues in front of him. And now, today, we're going to put a book in on this. How is this whole thing satisfied? What does it look like when it's satisfied, when it's all over? What does, it, what does it look like? You know, why do we celebrate at graduations? That's a rhetorical question. We celebrate at graduations because uh, whether it's high school, particularly college, or even grad school, 
We understand that there is a lot of pain involved in the process. There are times in which you felt like giving up. There's money that you didn't know you could get. There's all these expenses, and here's your reality. There's all kinds of surprise things and pressures and all of these things, the strain that is over you, but you got this dream. You keep pressing into it, and then all of a sudden, commencement comes, and you made it. And I don't know about you, I've spoken at a number of commencements and been at a, a, quite a few of them, and almost always at these commencements, someone will stand up and say, please hold your applause until everyone is announced and this kind of thing. But there's, you know, the, the parents don't pay attention to that stuff, you know, because they knew, they knew what it cost them to get there and say, hallelujah, gainfully employed, you're out of my pocket, I don't care about protocol. <laughs> it's all over. It's, it's all over. You know, I've discovered in my life that there's a relationship between the depth of my joy and the difficulty of the journey. There's a relationship between it. The joy is deeper and greater when I've had to go through an awful lot. It's richer and it's more meaningful. That's the reason why struggle often is a gift. That's the reason why opposition is a gift. We only see the snapshot, God sees the moving picture. We only see right now, God sees what's going to take place on the backside of this thing. God knew what was going to happen in the hearts and lives of the people. And so in order for them to experience his manifest presence, he had to make it, allow it to be, made, uh, to be very difficult for, for these folks. Thomas Rubin has made this observation. He says, happiness does not come from doing easy work but from the afterglow that comes after the achievement of a difficult task that demanded our best. Boy, it couldn't be said any better than that. Uh, it is sweet. It is rich. It is wonderful. And by the way, I say to younger leaders all the time some things that I've learned in my own heart and life, that, that you, you, you will never be what you desperately want to be if you keep running whenever you're opposed. It is in the staying there, it is in the pressing into it, it is in the seeing it through that, oh my, there is wonderful, great fulfillment because you have been through something. We've been saying this all along, and I want to put it one more time on the screen because this summarizes really the spiritual direction of this whole thing. Uh, the rebuilding of the wall was not a project, okay? And us building the student ministries building is not a project as such. On one level, yes, it is. We have to do certain things. I got that. But here's the vision for Nehemiah, and I pray that this is our vision as well. Here's the statement. Look at it on the screen one more time. God uses what he calls us to do to reveal himself to us and to make us more like him. That's the signature of any assignment from God. That's the signature. I'm giving you this thing to do, not so that you can have something else to do. I'm giving you this thing to do because it's a statement of my glory, but I want you to be better than what you just did. I want you to be like me, and I want you to be more, more like, like me. So now, the walls are built. What happened in these people? What happened as a result of this thing being satisfied? Nehemiah came. They were in the pit. They were being controlled. They were being manipulated. They had no hope. 
There was no direction. They had never thought in their lives that they could do anything at all. They stepped over this rubble every single day, and that was their normal. And all of a sudden, they rallied. God did something. So what happened in them? What happened in them? I, I, I want to point out that there were two awe-inspiring results. I wish I had a more searing graphic term to use. Two awe-inspiring results. And here they are. Number one, God was glorified. And number two, the people were transformed. I don't mean when I say they were transformed, that they were excited and that they had celebration dinners and they high-fived one another, look at what we did. No, I mean something richer, deeper, fuller, unbelievable, and we'll see that in a moment. First of all, God was glorified. Look at, look at Nehemiah chapter 6. I just want to look at two verses here, verses 15 and 16. Verse 15 says, so the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. I, I want you to park there for a second. In 52 days. I don't have time to go through this right now, but if you knew the dimensions of the city of Jerusalem and the condition of the walls... This is an astonishing accomplishment. When you read the book of Nehemiah, until you get to this statement, you got the impression that this is like a three or four year project. No, it wasn't. It was done in 52 days. By the way, um, the 25th day of Elul uh, roughly is equivalent to the 20th of September. I want you to understand something, that the people work during the hottest part of the year. I could have listed this as one of the sources of opposition. So you got to know there was nothing easy about what they did. nothing, Nothing possible about what they did. If you had pulled in the consultants and, and, and just looked at what they were up against, what their experience was, where Nehemiah came from, how long these walls had been in this condition. And now when, when do you want to build? Are you serious? There was absolutely, categorically, nothing possible about what they did. And this is going to help somebody today. God delights when we're in a position of impossibility. He orchestrated it this way. It was unbelievable. And by the way, the 52 days shows what can happen when there's leadership, a plan, unity, and execution. One of the marvelous things about this book is that planning and execution are not unspiritual. You'll notice how Nehemiah prayed, but Nehemiah, you know, he, he understood best practices and he planned and, and he executed and he would not come down. He bore into this. Unbelievable. And I want to say a word about unity because in all of that, I actually think that, well, leadership and unity are pretty close, but unity unity is the make or break thing in any venture of God. And I mentioned this last week that one of the tools that the devil uses more than anything else, first off the bat, is to divide people. 
because he understands that when people are disunified, they ain't going to do anything. Unity presupposes sacrifice and commitment. He called the people to look out beyond themselves and to look out beyond uh, where they were and look uh, out beyond their opinions and to see objectively what God wanted to do. Then he spelled out clearly what this is going to cost them in order to make this happen. And he, in so many words, before he got started, he said, I, we can't do any of this without you. We can't do it without you. I'm blowing smoke here unless there is unity, unless there is oneness, unless we step up and do what we can do to translate vision to reality. Leadership is only as good as followership. Leadership means nothing. We're, we're, we're just, you know, blowing smoke and giving a bunch of platitudes and ideas if it doesn't strike the hearts of the people who come alongside and say, we can do this. And so the statement, it was done in 52 days, is absolutely remarkable. The student ministries building will happen because we give ourselves to make it happen. It's that simple. You, we can pray all day long. Please forgive me on this because I'm not separating it. We can pray all day long and we can spiritualize all we want to. But until we do practically what the Lord has called us to do and roll up our sleeves and give what we are called to give, it's just a dream and not a reality. The second thing I want you to notice under this banner of God being glorified is a statement that God did the work. Look at verse 16. Unbelievable. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of God. I want to say a word about the last clause and then get back to the first clause secondly. That line, that purpose clause, for they perceive that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. God did the work. Even unbelievers who were watching them, and they had come by Jerusalem for years. They had seen the condition of these walls. They had seen, you know, yeah, okay, these Jews, are, you know, they're history, man. I mean, uh, uh, poor things. Uh, nothing can be done here. Look at this rubbish. This is like... This is like Slum City. This is Ghettoville here. You know, their environment reflects the condition of their, what they think about themselves and this kind of thing. There ain't nobody. Nobody. Look at where they live. Unbelievable. And then God pulls this off. God was glorified and the enemy was embarrassed. That's what you think about them, but that's not what I think about them. They're going to do something that, that, that you, you, you never thought they could do. And I'm going to do it for them. You know, when God does his work, the enemy is defeated and put to shame. Anyone who opposes God's work will ultimately be embarrassed. Now, I'm not, please don't hear me as grandstanding with regard to what we're doing. I'm speaking biblically and theologically. It is really true. That's where we always have to be careful about our opinions about things. You know, I, up until um, 
maybe 15, 10, 15 years ago, I was a little bit freer with my assessment and evaluation of other people and what they were doing, particularly their ministries and this kind of thing. And the Lord took me to the woodshed about that. The Lord took me to the woodshed about that. Be very careful because you don't know what I'm doing in somebody else's life. And I remember I got convicted by Acts chapter 5. Remember when the apostles got arrested and they got thrown in jail? And they got released from jail, and then they wanted to kill him. And then Gamaliel said, oh, 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 be careful now. Be careful, because if this is of God, you can't stop it. You can't stop it. And this is an illustration over here in Nehemiah chapter 6. These same dudes with the conspiracy, remember that? Same dudes that was going to come and kill him, remember that? Remember that? Same dudes that ridiculed them, remember that? Same dudes with all this stuff, remember remember the stuff that they tried to do? Chapters 4 through 6, remember all that? These same ones go, ooh, 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 ooh. God is in this thing. God is in this thing. So the nations around them realized what God had done. And they were humbled by his greatness. Now back to the first part of verse 16. Listen to what they say. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. Wow. Wow. It's like the bully in high school That picked on Steven Spielberg. Can you imagine how he feels now? By the way, that's a true story. Spielberg was bullied in high school. Nerd, creative, not cool. I wonder who's asking for jobs now. They were humbled by God's greatness. The line fell greatly in their own esteem. They lost image, reputation, and power. And what they said, now everybody knows that we're not as powerful and right as we claim to be. You know, when we fight against God, not only will we lose, we will be diminished. And that's exactly what happened in all of this. Quickly, when the wall was done, whoa. What is it that you want to say now? God did it. God did it. Unbelievable. You know, they, uh, they were the very ones who intimidated the Jews. They ended up being petrified. God had done something astonishing in their community. This reminds me of Daniel chapter 5. You remember that story with Belshazzar? Um, uh, the son or grandson, depending on chronology, of Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king at this point. Belshazzar is just really full of himself. He has this drunken uh, banquet and orgy. That's just really what was going on. He got plastered and remembered that his father, when he ransacked the temple and bought all these 
Jews back to Babylon that he had taken some holy things out of the temple and decided, go send for those holy artifacts, bring them in here. And he began to pour the liquor and the wine and stuff in that and, and offered them. And as soon as that thing touched his lip, there was a handwriting on the wall. As if God said, don't think you can trespass what I'm doing in your arrogance and not be held accountable. Throughout history, God has a way of letting even unbelievers know, no, 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 no. I'm God, you're not. As brilliant as you may be and as insightful as you may be, and as in control as you might think you are. Like that, you're diminished. God's work often is a statement of judgment. When God is glorified, that means others are judged. I, I hate to put it that way because it sounds so negative, but it really is true. When God is exalted, there's no room for anyone else. And so this was about his exaltation at this point. And by the way, I want to say this as a transition over to the second awe-inspiring result of this thing. Um, don't waste your time gloating over the defeat of your enemies. As you read from here on, you don't, you don't read Nehemiah going na 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 boo boo and lifting up banners draped down over the wall saying, these suckers didn't do it. Look at who, who's number one now. You know, look at, look at you, Geshem, what's going on with you, buddy? Uh, top of the rock, top of the mountain. No, you don't hear any of that. You, you, you really don't hear anybody. God gives us victories not to feed our pride, but to deepen our humility. That's the reason why he gives us victories. He's to be glorified by his people and by the enemy as well. Don't gloat, don't gloat over the victory. Don't, don't gloat over the victory. Pour yourself into celebrating what God has done, making him famous by what he has done in and through us. Whenever you gloat on, over your victory, you put a lid on further spiritual progress. That's, that's as high as you're ever going to go. You have just limited yourself. But when you give glory and honor to God and you realize that God has used a broken, cracked, chipped clay pot to do the impossible, it is amazing. That's the reason why I'm always drawn. Great men and women of God throughout history, they were used greatly because they were greatly humble. They didn't own what God did through them. And I pray that we'll never get to that place where we start boasting and bragging about what God does through us. He can take his hand off of us and he can place his hand on us. And so you don't see Nehemiah gloating. You just see a God and hear God doing some amazing, amazing things. The second thing that happens is that the people are transformed. The people are transformed. This is the North Star at which this whole thing was headed. This is what God wanted to see take place in the hearts and minds of his people from the very beginning. I don't have time to go through the reasons for the captivity, but let me just summarize it. It was because of gross sin and disobedience among his people. And that's why they were held captive. God wanted to, Nehemiah to rebuild the wall to call his people back to him. 
for them to experience transformation and, and freshness. I want to make three observations in terms of what takes place here. You know, number one, they had receptive hearts, and number two, they were repentant hearts, and number three, they were rejoicing hearts. It is amazing what happened. So the wall is rebuilt. Nehemiah gathers all the people together, and then they summon Ezra, the scribe and the prophet. They had not read the law, the word of God, in years. Can you feel the sign, the, the experience? Can you sense it? Fifty-two days of near terror, blood, sweat, and tears. You know the story of your history. Your great-great-grandparents, great-grandparents, you lost contact with them because they're now slaves in Persia. You've lived in squalor and crumble your whole life. You heard the great stories about the wall and the greatness of what God did through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses. You, you heard all of that. And now for the first time in generations, this wall is rebuilt. And you're standing there. And Ezra the priest comes out with the law the scrolls I can imagine that there were tears dripping down cheeks parents grabbing their kids and whispering we were born for this this is who we are and Ezra begins to read words they knew about but they had not heard in years what happens to these people <laughs> well you verse 3 says amazing and he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Uh, we, I, wish, I wish I was there. You ever, you, ever, you ever hear something that you just can't hear enough of? You, 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 ever, you ever hear an announcement on TV, something's going on and somebody's trying to say something, shh, no, wait, wait. The people are leaning in. They're paying attention with their eyes and their ears, but the eyes of their hearts. Pressing into the very voice, voice of God. You know, when God does the miraculous, our hearts should be in, um, leaning toward openness. And that's exactly what's happened here. Um, the line and the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law implies several things. God, God it worked and now they gave their attention to hearing from him. Can you imagine this? You know in the Bible there's an interesting um, word positioning. This is used often in Psalm 78 for example verse 5 Asaph begins by saying 
he established a testimony and then appointed a law. I think there's something to that word order. He demonstrated who he is so that you'll listen to what he says. They were set up to hear what God said because of what he had done miraculously through them. Oh boy. Again, it gets back to our anchor statement. When God gives us an assignment, he does it so it'll make us more like him. And so they, they were open because they were in awe of what God, what God had done. God's word commanded their attention. And I would say to you that that what we're seeing in Nehemiah chapter 8 is nothing short of revival. That's not being expansive. The Spirit of God bursts through. And the building of their lives, the triumph of their lives, the greatness of their lives eclipsed the building of the wall. The effect of what God did lasted for more than the 52 days. It was really, really remarkable. And by the way, the the power of God's word brings revival. Uh, This is an illustration of a principle that's just repeated throughout the scriptures. That's the reason why here at Fellowship Bible Church, our philosophy of preaching and teaching, my philosophy of preaching is what we call expository preaching. And what that really means is that I stand as a servant to, to God's word. What he says is far more important than my illustrations and stories. You might be interested in how I say something, maybe. You might be interested in a story that I tell, but there's no transformative power in that. Where the power comes is in this book. That's where the power comes. This is the voice of God. And so what happens here, God ignites something in their hearts. So he moves them from receptive, open hearts because of what he did. Now they get to the place of having repentant hearts. In fact, they are so grieved over sin that Nehemiah and Ezra and the rest have to pull them back from the ledge. Look look at verses 9 through 11. Wow. Unbelievable. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And you know, they they were repentant. Their hearts were broken because they realized why they were in the condition to begin with. They understood that they contributed to their mess. It wasn't about Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, all of this external stuff. That they were in this mess because of their own sinful disobedience. They had not listened to God. They did not cherish his word. They had kicked his word to the curb. They said, I knew better. And all of a sudden, God galvanizes them, and they do something, and they're forced to stick with something, and they're forced to press into God. And then the word of God hits them, and they say, oh, God, help me. God help me. God help me. I'm of the opinion that God doesn't do more in us because we don't sense and feel the depths of our own disobedience to Him. 
and they were marked. You cannot look at an authentic work of God and hear his word without something happening to your soul. And that's what I'm praying will take place. I've been praying for revival to take place ever since I came here in 2005. And I continue to pray for that. So we have a wonderful church. We've got great people here. We've got great servants here. But we haven't seen 10, 20% of what God, <laughs> what God really has in store for us. If we will come to grips and deal with the stuff underneath the surface in our hearts, some of the sinful places that we go to, and realize on one hand, yes, the work of God is resilient, but at the same time, the work of God is very fragile. The divine paradox there. That it's always about the condition of my heart. My heart. My heart. So they respond the way their forefathers should have responded. And if their forefathers had responded that way, they never would have been in captivity and they would never would have had these shambles that they dealt with. Well, the people re repented. And God, through his word, liberates their spiritual captivity. But the wonderful thing as you read this text, not only were they confronted with their sin, but also with God's love and mercy. You know, God in his mercy allowed them to rebuild a tangible expression of hope. I would say that the rebuilding of the wall was an act of restitution. The rebuilding of a wall was an act of restitution. You, you did this as a sign back to me that you're willing to go in this direction. And I would say this, and I don't want to play with this too much, but I actually believe when we respond to God's call in our lives, it is, it is a statement of our gratitude for what he has done for us. That we were willing to do whatever he tells us to do as an expression of our, of our thanksgiving. God, my life belongs to you. It's a living sacrifice. I've laid it on the altar. Everything that I have is yours. My time is yours. My money is yours. My life is yours. My family is yours. Everything that's associated with me is yours. And the question is, the question is, how you, do you want me to do, use it? What do you want me to do with it? I place it before you. And I think the folks got it. And then they also exhibited rejoicing hearts. And Nehemiah and the rest said, wait, 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 no, no, don't, please don't beat yourself up. God receives your repentance. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And he told them to go in verse 12. It says, and all the people went their way to eat, drink, and to send portions 
and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. You have to take that understood more than just cognitively understanding, connected with their emotional response. They understood it comprehensively. They understood it here and here. They understood it here and here. They understood it here and here. We built this wall. Then he said, no, no, no. God did it. God did it. Unbelievable. You know, Hosea chapter 4, verse 6 says, my people are destroyed because of a lack of knowledge. And this was literally true with the Jews who were left back in, in, in Jerusalem. A willful ignorance of the word of God cemented them in their condition. And all of us are destroyed because of a lack of knowledge, whether it is passive or intentional. We need to grab a hold of it. You know, there are three pillars of our student ministries. Really, the strategy is quite simple, and I, I really am a great cheerleader for it. There are three pillars of our student ministries. And what we want to see take place in the student ministries building, it will facilitate these three things. Number one, the word of God. Number two, community. And number three, service. Paul said it in passing a few moments ago, but we want everyone, we want our students to engage with God in a setting where they can hear clearly the word of God and build their lives on them. We're not interested in Christian cul-de-sacs, but we want to help launch these young people wherever they might go, wherever they find themselves, whether it's UGA, Sanford University, Auburn, uh, Kennesaw, wh whatever, or some of them won't do that. They'll go other places, but, but they need an environment in which without distraction, they can hear clearly and understand the word of God and then engage in authentic community with one another without people stepping over them and without shouting a cart is coming through for them to engage with people that love them and to experience community and fellowship and the realization that they're to live life in accountable relationships. Then also use the place as a launching pad to help instruct them and guide them and point them to meaningful acts of service and impact for the glory of God and the fulfillment of the great, great commission. So that's what we're all about. The bottom line is that the people had forgotten and ignored God's word, which, resorted, which resulted in devastation and the loss of hope. But completing God's will and finding God's word resulted in life and hope. Life and hope. So that's the reason why we respond to any assignment. We want to give life and hope. I guess I'm a little sensitive to this because of this stage in my life. The way you become an irrelevant Christian is by pursuing relevance. Let me explain what I mean by that. When all you think is that your moment in history is all that really matters, that's when you're irrelevant. But the way to be great stewards of what God wants done during your moment in history 
is to reach back and remember where you came from and those enduring things and to understand that your moment in history is a stewardship of that and a commissioning of a generation that you can't see. So I take that and in this generation with an eye on the future, I use my moment in history with great urgency and intentionality to shape the next generation. That is, my friend, powerful relevance. Powerful relevance. So what we want to do right now is that I, um, I know that many of you have been praying and, uh, about what the Lord would have you to do, and, and we've said this, Brian uh, has said this, and we've said it all along. I have zero pressure on me or any of us if we all respond to the Lord in terms of what he has called us to do and what he would have you to do in helping to translate this vision to reality, I believe with all my heart we'll have more than enough resources to do what God has called us to do. The big issue is responding to the Lord. Are we listening to him? And so at this point, I'm going to have our, our ushers come and to lift up our offering in our offering what i like for you to do is to place in your intention card perhaps you forgot it today or this kind of thing i am notorious for doing that myself to be honest with you uh, you can you can go online fellowshiproswell.org and fill it out there you can come by the uh, office and maybe even next week bring it but we would like like for you to uh pass in your in, intention intention card and as I've said to you before, and I, I hesitate to say this a second time because this is sort of a little bit out of what I would normally do, but just so that you know, I would never ask any of you all to do anything that Karen and I have not done, and we've prayed together, and we're giving the most significant gift we've ever given to anything in over 40 years of our ministry, and we're going to have to trust God for it, but praise the Lord, that's what it's really all about, amen, trusting him, and we're excited to see what God's going to do. We're excited. Um, he's always provided, and I just can't wait to see what he's going to do now. So we're going to have the worship team come and sing a closing song, and then I'll come and give a benediction. But at this moment, would you, at the end of your um, aisle, there's, there's a basket, and uh, you can put your offering in there.